Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Welcome to 2023. Hello, friends. <laughs> and welcome also to a series of episodes called How to Live Beyond. To open 2023, each episode in this series will consider a set of tools or a way of thinking that are useful, but that we're ready to go beyond, especially this year. We'll be looking at things like abundance and manifestation, wellness and self-development, entheogens, paganism, and more. These are the techniques and traditions that we use to cope with and confront the challenges of our time. Um, whether it's economic challenges, political challenges, just setting goals and wanting to get stuff done in our life and wanting to be better people. But these all risk, if we can't consider them deeply, getting us stuck uh, more deeply in those challenges, or worse, funneling their strengths back into those challenges and reinforcing them. These episodes aren't a call to forget about the techniques and the traditions, but instead a call to bring them forward uh, with what they've offered into 2023 without the barbs of the problems they're tangled up with stuck in them. So in other words, um, <laughs> I'm taking as a starting point last year's How to Live series, which was one of the most popular runs of episodes of this show, but pushed a bit, not just talking about what we should do, but also what we should be untying and leveling up from, uh, what we should be redeeming as we engage in new patterns, habits, perspectives, and ways of thinking this year. And I'm sure it'll be <laughs> applicable next year, although who knows, things change quite rapidly these days. This time, to start, uh, I'm taking up the flurry of resolutions that accompany the new year and talking with New Age scholar and practitioner Mitch Horowitz. Mitch has been on the show many times. The last appearance was uh, in conversation with anarchist organizer Dean Spade on episode 200. Uh, we'll be talking about the new age and positive thinking and how we can reconceptualize them as they become more and more accepted. Now that new age principles like positive thinking, like manifestation, envisioning for success, vision boards, business storytelling meetings, and their close relatives like sigil magic and energy work and more are just part of our culture, isn't it time to take a new look at them? What have we learned? Has their effectiveness and usefulness dulled over time? Why are they so easily woven as techniques into dominant paradigms, even if they're meant to be challenging them? And of course, from a more political standpoint, why are they so incoherent that they disregard human suffering a lot of times and replace it with blame? You're just not thinking well enough. You're not manifesting well enough. So that's why you're suffering. Um, and there's not a lot of regard also for socio-political, economic situations, and so forth. And how is it that they often end up seamlessly weaving into desires formed by capitalists as well as socialist economic models? I mean, I thought this was a new age. <laughs> Wasn't this supposed to be leading us to something completely different? This is a wide-ranging conversation that interrogates many aspects of the New Age movement and New Age thought without losing sight of its very real offerings. It's how to live beyond the New Age. Um, so the New Age is still there, but how do we take it and move forward with it?
Against Everyone with Connor Habib is brought to you by Patreon patrons who sign up at patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. So please take a pause now and be one of those patrons if you're not. So patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. While they're going and doing that, if you are a patron, take a second now and just hear me say thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Patreon ensures that the show goes on, but also connects you to a way of supporting artists and thinkers like me that isn't about paying someone for their labor. You're not paying me to work. You're offering into an economic system where people are thanked and appreciated for who they are in the world. So your contribution supports my writing and my podcasts and my events, but also just supports a system of value where people are supported and trusted instead of merely directed to work and churn out content or to seek sponsorship from businesses who have nothing to do with the art and expression you're appreciating. No one wants to hear an ad that has nothing to do with the integral message of a podcast in the middle of it. It always seems so false because it is. Your support, on the other hand, is real. It expresses a real relationship between me and you. Patreon is perfect, but it's as good as we've got right now. So please do go to the site and support the show and my efforts as well as that of other creators and artists that you love on Patreon. My Patreon is patreon.com forward slash Connor and Beeb. Thank you. And before we start, I will say one other thing, which is that I've been sort of fussing around with a new theme song with my friend Ben Chasney, also known by his band name Six Organs of Admittance. And uh, we've come up with one that we're going to be using, at least for this series of episodes. Um, it touches a lot more on <laughs> my Syrian heritage. Uh, it has a lot more of a Middle Eastern vibe to it. I hope you like it. Uh, here we go. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is Against Everyone with Connor Abib, the first episode of 2023. And I am very happy that this has become a bit of a tradition now. Mitch Horowitz, hello. <laughs> Good to be here, man. Good to see you. You know, the new year is, it's a really special time because I think people tend to think of resolutions or commitments or whatever is kind of hokey. And I think there's even a little bit of a, like a little bit of a revolt against them these days. But one thing that's really special is that we have a bunch of people, you know, thinking about how can I be someone that I want to be? How can I be who I really am? How can I change the world? How can I change myself all at the same time? And I think that that's pretty profound. So, well, I mean, obviously not everybody's thinking about it, but as we're sort of feeding in. So before we get into the conversation about (laughs) beyond uh, positive thinking, beyond the new age, that sort of stuff, I want to just talk about that, the turning of the year and um, maybe utilizing and harnessing that world literally the inertia of the planet (laughs) Uh, and the movement of the planet um, in, in achieving what we want for ourselves and for each other. Well, it it seems to me that the problem with resolution problem with resolutions in general 
is that they compel us to place stock in thought, whereas emotions are stronger than thought. This was an observation made by G.I. Gurdjieff that your emotions are like a horse and they're often running, as one of his students put it, pitting thought against emotion is the equivalent of pitting steam power against nuclear power. The latter is going to win out every time. If if this wasn't so, then none of us would have problems with angry outbursts or with addictions or with persisting in behaviors, whatever they may be that we know are harmful. If you ask almost any individual, he or she could announce the things that uh, he should be doing or shouldn't be doing, um, could recall times where a vow was made not to get angry at somebody, but then somebody does something triggering and the emotions come pouring out. So resolutions are so heavily based in the notion that thought itself is in the driver's seat. And of course, thought is off doing its own thing. The emotions are doing their own thing. The body is doing its own thing. And all these impulses, all these urges are are owed something. Uh, we we can't just choose to live strictly from one place, and 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 I don't think we could do it if if everything depended on it. Because in many cases, people do encounter situations where everything depends upon no longer using a drug or taking another hit from the bottle or whatever it is, and yet we fall to pieces because we are in pieces. So it seems to me that we need to start from a question of our situation being so fragmented, being so divided. And is there a way perhaps to get emotions on our side? And if there's not a way to get emotions on our side, is there a way to change our environment so that thought maybe, maybe has a space to enter? If an individual is in a relationship, for example, of any kind, uh, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's intimate, whether it's family, whether it's employment, whatever it is, if an individual is in a relationship that proves depleting and that almost invariably results in the same desperate patterns getting repeated, that relationship needs to end. It may not be something that the individual can end right away because there may be domestic or economic needs or any number of things that make the consequences too difficult to bear. But the fact is, it's very unlikely that we're going to come to a solution to a better place unless we're in an environment, and that it could include being in a smaller environment with fewer relationships, that is more sustaining of who we are, is more complementary to who we are, and doesn't force us into that continual cycle of desperation, then I think there's a possibility for, for thought and intellect to enter. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm just sort of thinking about the way our lives unfurl into reality. It's like, uh, uh, I have a thought and then that moves through a mode of space into an action. Or like, you know, maybe to sort of trace it backwards, like Byron Katie 
well, the spiritual teacher, Brian Katie, she'll say like, you know, an emotion is an alarm to a thought. Like when you have an emotion, you can sort of trace it into the thought realm and figure out what the thought is. Then also you can recognize what situations or actions or things that are willed alert you to the emotion <laughs> that you're in. So it's this sort of backwards thing. So I think, yeah, it's like thought is... <clears throat> thought is underneath i mean just i'm just sort of thinking this right now that the thought is underneath the emotions but the emotion it's so much closer to the surface and that's why it ends up overwhelming a thought i mean and And if if i may oh sorry go ahead no go ahead no go ahead forgive the interruption it 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 occurs to me and this is an insight from gurjeev that emotion is also much faster than thought and that's exactly what you were just saying Emotion moves more quickly than thought, which is why all of us have the experience of maybe someone saying something that's demeaning or that's cutting, and we're tongue-tied. We we don't know how to respond. And then, of course, five minutes later, we think of the perfect rejoinder. That's a universal human predicament, and it's nobody's fault. It's just because emotion moves faster than thought. And when we get hit with something and 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 we're we're prone to emotion, whether it's anger or fear or whatever it is, uh, the the thought, it will come, but it will come more slowly. And that is a human predicament. Yeah. I mean, in fact, in some ways, I would say my, uh, you know, big part of my spiritual development has just been not necessarily redirecting my thoughts, but engaging with my thinking so that the emotion isn't faster than it you know, mm-hmm. in, so, in some ways, so that I enter into a different process when things happen, or I do something or someone does something to me, whether good or bad. Mm-hmm. So not just, you know, I mean, it it's fine if people want to leave all the pleasurable stuff alone and not think about it and just enjoy it. I'm all for that, too, if people <laughs> want that. But um, for me, you know, not necessarily even privileging those, not for attachment, or, or not for the uh, purpose of uh, non-attachment or detaching from it, but rather to become someone who is experiencing a different aspect of living, which is my thinking processes and allowing those to not be outrun or maybe overwhelmed by the weather of emotions. Um, so I, you know, I was thinking when I asked you the question about the new year, there's this, uh, there's a Rudolf Scharner quote where he says, uh, on New Year's Eve, our folk soul briefly releases us. And consequently, what we then think is perceived by the highest hierarchies and has the power in it to be brought into reality. So, you know, in a way, what's being said there is that there's an attentiveness to what we've turned ourselves to, our attention to, there's a cosmic attentiveness to it. It's There's a sort of meeting of the two worlds around New Year's Eve. And that's why, you know, part of why everybody does it, you know, and it, it has this sort of relationship to the turning of the planets and the sun and the moon and all that, which is also really fascinating that we do that then. Um, because why not do it on your birthday, for instance? You know, I mean, I suppose some people do, but as a sort of world movement. So, yeah, I mean, I hear you that it's like there are a lot of things kind of obstructing the way. And then also I think that there is a sort of an opportunity or a connectivity between other people and resolutions and wanting to sort of remake your own personal world and the world that you share 
and maybe also a cosmic connectivity there. So, I mean, maybe it's, you know, maybe there's just a direct uh, personal question to you if you <laughs> if you do that work around the turn of the year. <laughs> well, it's very interesting. What Steiner was describing, I think, could also be considered an interval. You know, we're we're summoned to these intervals at certain moments, and we as as a human community may experience a sense of interval together when there is a new year, or we may experience it individually when there is a birthday or some uh, marker of a life event. I think we also experience these intervals at points of extreme emotion. That could be grief. That could be euphoria. Mm. I remember the philosopher Jacob Needleman, who we lost just this past year, just a few weeks ago, actually. Um, He was talking to me about the manner in which our emotions and our relationships and our responses to other people are so repetitive and are so rote, almost as if there's just 20 or, or so reactions that we seem to have over and over again across the span of our lives. But he said to me that when his own mother died, he was very affected emotionally by her death. And he said that he experienced a personal interval. There was a relaxation of some of these habitual responses because something so basic had been removed from his world. And he suddenly felt that he no longer had to engage, at least for a brief period of time, because these things change. Life is dynamic. The onrush of rote emotions and responses inevitably re-enters, it re-enters, which is why it's dangerous to assume that these intervals mark some lasting turning point. They don't necessarily do that at all. But while the interval is being experienced, he said he was no longer induced to issue kind of mealy-mouthed apologies to people if he wasn't able to deliver on something or uh, didn't feel the same reactiveness if somebody said something that had previously been uh, provoking. Uh, he felt this this kind of space. He felt a space. And it's very valuable to watch for that. Again, uh, it doesn't really last because life is dynamic, life is cyclical, and patterns do tend to reassert themselves. But in these periods of high-pitched emotion, just watch Watch what's going on because there can be a kind of stoppage of the familiar. And it's valuable because it reminds us that we're not entirely imprisoned in these same rote responses. And I've experienced that on occasions, again, where there's some extreme emotion and it, it, it can, it can be fear, grief, euphoria, you know, it it can be positive, it can be negative. But when something happens that removes a kind of foundational resource from our lives, it's amazing how things stop. I remember one time many years ago, I was working, it was just after I graduated from college, and I was working for a small newspaper in northwestern Pennsylvania, daily newspaper. And there was a uh the the Susquehanna River was running through the town and there were there was a lot of homeless people who lived down by the Susquehanna and they were being subjected to these attacks there was a homeless couple that had a very violent dog 
and they were sicking the dog on, on other homeless people. And as a crusading young reporter, I decided I was going to go do a story about this. So I went out looking for this couple who was engaged in the attacks. And um, you often get what you're looking for. And I found them uh, in a parking lot. And I was uh, I was with another homeless guy um, and a social worker who was supposed to be the... Um, Oh, I don't know. I guess the ombudsman or the mediator who would introduce me to these people and make sure everything remained cool. Uh, well, things did not remain cool and they began getting up in my face with this very uh, violent, scary dog. And, um, I don't know if it was a pit bull by breed, but they identified it as a pit bull. And, uh, the social worker kind of turned around and averted her gaze. And I was all alone in this situation. And this man, <laughs> who was like this really, really big guy, um, began to faint uh, punches at my face, you know, just to see if I would flinch. And the dog uh, was snarling and baring its teeth and was straining at the leash. And suddenly, it was like everything in my world just stopped. And I thought, you know, in a, in a moment, this guy is going to connect with one of his punches. I'm going to be on the floor and I can only hope that dog doesn't land on top of me because that could be it. You know, that could be it. And it was the strangest thing, Connor. Like, suddenly, all the blood rushed to the center of my body. Everything just stopped. I felt no emotion. I felt no awareness of, of anything around me other than just the thought, I'm going to know what this feels like. I'm going to know what this feels like. This guy is going to punch me. I'm going to be flat on the asphalt and this dog is going to come on top of me and I'm going to know what this is like. Now, that didn't happen. Things cooled down. He backed off. He followed me and stalked me for weeks afterwards, which was scary as hell. But when I was in the actual situation where I was physically in a lot of danger, it, it was an interval. Everything just stopped. Everything just stopped. And I just remember standing there just thinking, I'm going to know what this is like. So I don't wish it on anybody that they have to be in that situation. But when you are in these situations of extremity, where your ordinary guardrails are removed, you realize that there is a different way of being. It might not necessarily be, be happy, or it might not necessarily be something that you want to repeat. Yeah. And it doesn't have to involve grief or fear or violence. But uh, I think people experience it at moments of euphoria too. But 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 our psyches are not these fixed entities, and and it's important, I think, for the individual to note for him or herself that there are these 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 exit ramps. You know, can they be induced? You know, that's a question for the search. Yeah, what a great story. So I'm just sort of thinking about how we came to this story because I'm asking a question about um, the new year and, you know, a huge aspect of that is basically a time aspect. Time kind of skips it around the new year. It's like, okay, here we go again. You know, the planet has an entire day in its life, which is a year in ours, you know, and you, and so we have this sort of weird, um, almost aperture in time. And it sounds like you're standing in that aperture <laughs> when this dog's coming at you, where time, you know, 
out of all the other things that might have been going on, time has a different quality there for you. It sort of pulls itself apart so you can see and experience things in ways that you wouldn't necessarily. I mean, I've had this in uh, emergency situations, like um, the writer Rebecca Solnit has written about uh, emergency or disaster personalities. And certain people get very calm in disasters. I get very calm in a disaster and time is definitely flowing through and around me in a way that it's not for other people. So that's, I am relating to time very differently because I'm like, okay, this needs to happen. This needs to happen. And this needs to happen. And so, whereas someone else might be sort of panicking or having a different relationship. And then, you know, I can have a, uh, uh, heartburn or like a like a coughing in a theater and my heart will speed up and I'll start panicking because I'll be like oh shit I don't want everybody like looking at me while I'm coughing right so it's not like I've developed a complete relationship to time but in certain in a complete like pull apart relationship to time but in some instances um particularly these sort of bigger ones where a real uh challenge to my actual being is happening or the being of the world I'm I engage with time and what I hope is sort of the right way, you know? And so that equanimity that's happening there. And I do think part of what's happening now in 2023 to talk about time and has been happening for a while, but it's coming to light is that our relationship to time is definitely changing. The mystery of time is one of the things that's sort of opening up for us now. And a lot of people have written about this, um, Sean Gebser, uh, Rudolf Steiner, Owen Barfield, a lot of other people, but I think we can sense it in, in some of these moments. So maybe we'll talk about that mystery of time, that gift of time that's been opening. But one way I can think of it opening just off the top of my head, obviously, is meditation. When you go into a meditative state and you meditate for five minutes, like you come back and it's like you're on Mars for like three fucking hours, you know, like yeah. the, the room like suddenly becomes more present. Materiality changes because you've done something different with time. And this is why... You know, um, just to go on with this for one more second here, like when people talk about um, the sort of overwhelming presence of the political realm, of political concerns, of material concerns or whatever, I'm often think thinking about the idea that there's always a kind of uh, dimensionality where we don't exist in the rush of those things. And, you know, as you mentioned, Gurdjieff before, P.D. Spensky, you know, who was a comrade of Gurdjieff's, wrote about this pretty extensively um, that sometimes, you know, that we have a different dimension that we live in that's not about the rush of all the everyday events. So uh, that was sort of a mouthful without a question, but I think I leave leave it to you to it's, comment it's, on that. It's brilliant. You know, I think what you've outlined is so incredibly, incredibly important. And I want to unpack that for a moment. Um, it may be that in those instances you described, such as meditation, we may be experiencing time in a more actual way than we do with this conceptual sense of linearity, which, of course, feels so overwhelmingly real and persuasive and linearity or our sense of it is necessary for us as as five sensory beings to make our way through life if you say to me uh Mitch we're going to talk at you know 12 noon eastern time i can't show up late and say well connor there is no such thing as time obviously <laughs> we need it and i'm sure you've had guests who have done that but uh, obviously we need that as a 
organizing principle. No one's been that spiritual yet, Mitch. Oh, okay. Oh, good, good, good. Shoo. Um, <laughs> on the New Age circuit, we experience that all the time, uh, so to speak. Um, and um, and yet, what you put your finger on is so important because I think it may be the actuality of things that we grasp only once in a while. And to use your example of Uspensky himself, he was uh, forced to serve in the army during uh, World War One. He didn't want to, but those were the circumstances. And um, he had been working with Gurdjieff and he wondered, uh, what have I gotten out of the work? Has this really produced any changes in my life? And he was in this unbelievably harrowing situation once where he was alone somewhere in the field and mortars started falling all around him. And he he was looking for a ditch or a foxhole or something to dive into so that he could get safe. And he said, you know, I suddenly had this experience of everything slowing down, everything slowing down. I was thinking clearly. I knew exactly what I needed to do. I needed to get to cover you know, somewhere. And I was scanning the landscape and asking myself, where am I going to go? How am I going to get there? What's the trajectory of these mortars? How am I going to save myself? And he said, you know, I felt at that instance, the truth of these ideas. And I felt it so indelibly that he averred, it was far more than a psychological truth. I'm sure there's a TED talk that could explain to us the brain synapses that resulted in exactly Uspensky's experience. But the problem with many of our go-to explanations is that we assume that they're these magic bullets and that they're the only thing that's going on. Yeah. So yes, his brain might be firing differently. And if you could hook Uspensky up to electrodes at that moment, somebody might be able to explain to us exactly what was going on psychologically. But that doesn't mean it's the only thing that's occurring. And one of the things I've been writing about a lot over the past year are experiments in precognition that were done about 10 years ago by a Cornell University psychologist named Daryl Bem. And the reason it's helpful to be writing about Bem's experiments 10 years hence is that they have been meta-analyzed, they've been studied, they've been parsed, they've been gone over. And statistically, they've proven confirmatory. One could argue with his thesis all you want, but the stats and the material that, that he amassed have proven confirmatory in a meta-analysis consisting of 90 studies in 33 different labs in 14 different nations. This is no joke. And what he found, in short, in his most alluring experiments, was that if subjects were given uh, a very ordinary word test, like I'm going to say 10 words to you, and then I want you to repeat back to me however many you can remember, you know, subjects would get the ordinary score that you would expect. Maybe they would remember five or six words. If the same procedure were repeated with one added wrinkle, with one added wrinkle, that after the recall exam, the students, the subjects would study the test again, post-recall, post-recall, their scores in a small but consistent manner replicated over thousands upon thousands of trials would spike, would spike. So there would be a statistical difference of a couple of percentage points. And it's the kind of thing that, of course, we all want to argue with because it violates all common 
experience. It violates all common observation. And the clinical psychologist, um, Steven Pinker, uh, called me out for some of this in Skeptic Magazine, The Porch of the Stoics. And Pinker, who has no patience whatsoever for any questions of ESP or extra physicality or precognition, said, in effect, this is ridiculous. Are you saying if a student takes an exam and gets a certain grade, he or she can improve the grade by studying afterwards? And the truth is, first of all, although it violates a debate rule to accept an interlocutor's question on its premise, I'm going to I'm going to say yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Not that the grade changes. It's not that your B magically changes to a B plus. No, that's not what Bem found. What Bem found is that cognitive performance can have a retrocausal factor. Cognitive performance, as we understand it in linear time, can be improved after the fact. I have an article about this at Boing Boing called "Is Precognition Real?" It's heavily footnoted. Anybody who wants to argue with it is welcome to take a look at that. Look at the numbers, follow the links. Boom. It's an extraordinary thesis backed up through very traditional, transparent, and replicated scientific methods. Now, it's not like Zeus throwing lightning bolts at the earth. The statistical deviance is very small, but also very consistent. So dig this. Let's get practical. There was a, <clears throat> earlier uh, in uh, 2022, there was a martial arts uh, fighter, a Muay Thai fighter, Thai kickboxing, who came to me and he said, look, I have a championship match uh, in a few days and um, I'm getting kind of nervous. Is there something you can advise to help me with my mental game? And I, I prescribed to him this exercise that I sometimes do called which is called the 30-day mental challenge. It's just an exercise in, in focused or positive thinking for 30 days. It sounds very elementary, and it is, and it is, because I believe very strongly in simple, simple methods. Simple methods, if applied with passion, can reveal great profundity. That's a basic outlook of mine. So I prescribed him this exercise, and he said, well, look, I'm definitely going to do it, but my fight is in nine days. Is there something you can prescribe that's more short-term? And I said to him, dig this. And I explained the retrocausality thesis. And I said, do this exercise now. Keep doing it. Stick with it. Keep doing it. There's reason to believe that cognitive and very possibly physical athletic performance can be improved, however slightly, after the fact. And I said, I can assure you, your opponent's coaches are not talking to him about retrocausality. So consider this your secret <laughs> weapon and just do it. You know, just humor me. Well, <clears throat> he did win the match. He was amazingly relaxed during the match, just incredibly so. Now, you know how fighters can pick their entry music and very often they'll pick some ear-bleeding uh, hip-hop or techno metal song. He used um, the Belinda Carlisle song, Heaven is a Place on Earth. And one of the announcers said, I love that he's coming out to Belinda Carlisle. And he was just so relaxed <laughs> That's really funny. and so cool. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Uh, his, his name is uh, Spencer Hadley. And he, he won. He won the match. And I felt that this was a really worthy experiment for the individual. I feel it's a worthy experiment for anybody. If Bem's data is correct and it has stood up, there, it, it can be seriously postulated that there's a retrocausal effect. 
So what you do in the so-called future can impact your performance in the so-called present. That's the takeaway. That's the hypothesis. And it's supported. And so this is just one small way of talking about the manner in which time may be something very, very different from what we experience during the linear march of hours that is so conceptually important. I think this is a huge, wonderful area for inquiry, both on a cultural scale and on an individual scale. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what Steven Pinker would feel or say if he had a dream that someone he cared about was going to die in a week. And it yeah. was in the dream said, this is coming. Uh, this is a message from the future, right? Like it's, I understand when you <clears throat> putting Steven Pinker aside, I, I understand, you know, why, or, sorry, what I mean to say by putting P- Steven Pinker aside is putting aside all the stuff I dislike about his own. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can understand why he would make that critique because if he's, outside of it, you know, in any sort of way other than just sort of intellectually considering it based on the principles that he believes have to be foundational to every argument, then of course, you know, but what we're saying is that there are, you know, well, what you're saying, but I'm agreeing with is like that there, there's proof that shatters the foundations of that he bases all his arguments on. And, you know, this is a, we talked about this oddly enough, perhaps for this conversation, not about um, parapsychological or paranormal stuff. I, I talked about just about philosophy with um, Kathy Weeks, who wrote a great book about feminism um, and standpoint theory, where she says, you know, she writes about um, postmodernist philosophy and modernist philosophy and how like when... <laughs> when Foucault's books were coming out, a bunch of sort of modernist philosophers were like, you can't do that. Like that's not following blah, blah, blah. And everybody on Foucault's side was saying this it's precisely true because it is a new way of looking at things that can't be encompassed by what you said. And so there was no way in which they could ever meet each other because one was demanding on um, the old sort of precepts and the the new one was saying, yes, but what we're saying is that those precepts don't matter anymore. And so it reminds me of you just sort of lamenting in one of your books, you know, sometimes no matter how much you explain, you can't be heard. It's actually, you can't be heard. Like Stephen Picker is right. incapable <clears throat> with that sort of set of set of perceptions and concepts and percepts and you know, approach, he's actually incapable of hearing what you're saying. But the thing that could shatter that is an emotive experience, which evaded his, his intellect that could actually create the passageway. Yeah. That is so beautifully, beautifully put. Gurdjieff used to talk about how we walk around with buffers. And as you just expressed it, we literally can't hear the question. You know, somebody lies or does something dishonest or unethical and they're presented with the facts that they broke their word or whatever. They won't hear the question. They will change the subject. They will change the subject. It won't enter. There were famous lab experiments done. Gosh, I think it was in the forties, fifties, I'm sorry, where a white coat uh, uh, clinician instructed uh, lab subjects to send an electrical shock to what they later discovered was an imaginary subject. 
And some people were willing to push it all the way where they were almost shocking this person to death. And there was a movie made of this. And one of the uh, subjects who shocked someone to death, uh, or, or so he was given evidence to believe, was asked by the clinician, well, gee, what were you experiencing when you kept pushing the electrical shock button? And, uh, and the guy just wouldn't answer. You know, he wouldn't answer. It's a simple question. What were you experiencing? Did you care that you were going to hurt this person? Did you care that you were going to potentially threaten this person's life? And instead of saying, wow, I lost my mind there. I don't know what, you know, the guy just wouldn't answer the question. And all the subjects did this, who were who, the people who pushed it to the end. Mm. And they were confronted with their own inhumanity. But instead of responding, well, you know, uh, gee, I'm really relieved that, that to find out that guy's not hurt. You know, they would just change the subject, change the subject. We all have this. We all suffer from this. We self-conceive of ourselves in a particular way, or we self-conceive of a subject, and it's impossible to let in contrary evidence. So to take Pinker as an example, Pinker wrote a book, maybe it came out in the last year, uh, in which he sought to analyze what he considers irrationality. So he lumped in ESP, uh, belief in ESP, with belief in all kinds of outrageous things, you know, the whatever, you know, you name it, uh, climate change isn't real or whatever. And, and he, he sees that as a rational act. He feels he's making things better. And the presentation of evidence to the contrary can be constantly evaded, constantly evaded through intellectual calisthenics. But as you're saying, the emotional experience of a of an extraordinary effort uh, of an extraordinary incident a shock that runs contrary to the intellect mm. it it's the only thing that can open a person up and that aperture will close too that aperture will close the skeptic michael shermer who runs skeptic magazine described a bizarre and extraordinary experience on his wedding day where a transistor radio that had been broken and had resisted all efforts at repair suddenly played a song that was extremely moving to his bride and evoked a memory of a, a deceased relative who obviously couldn't be at the wedding. And Shermer said, you know, for a moment there, my skepticism was shaken. But of course, the aperture closes. I would say, bravo, Michael, bravo. Don't run away from that experience. Don't piss on that experience. Don't let your friends and colleagues take that away from you. That's an opening. Now, <clears throat> Jeff Kripal, who's a historian of religions and a, a dear friend, has criticized my attachment to laboratory data. I get very attached to these statistics and numbers, you know, as I was describing with relation to them. And Jeff once said, um, there's the Irish woods and there's the German lab. And I am kind of a creature of the German lab. <laughs> and Jeff feels that I need to spend more time in the Irish woods because it's the emotional experiences, the testimonies. And testimonies are are very often accurate. Uh, there's is There's this total myth that Every testimony is born of confirmation bias or something, which is a very overused term, which almost eliminates the human capacity to search. You know, so from Lao Tzu to Christ to Sylvia Plath, you know, mm -hmm. fuck it all. It's confirmation bias. It's so dehumanizing and mm -hmm. it's not accurate. And, you know, Jeff's contention uh, aligns well with yours that um, these 
dramatic shattering experiences, even if they don't repeat, are real. And they open the person to questions in a way that no intellectual argumentation uh, ever could. So they're to be cherished. They're to be cherished. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so much in there, Mitch. So let me just try to take a stab. I mean, I was thinking about how, let me, let me start with trauma actually maybe is a, a place to start how trauma is has a time aspect to it where people keep reliving some event for whatever reason was so um personally you know devastating or affecting that they actually can't see what's around them they're stuck in a moment and you know then they they can get out of it but there's this sort of memory uh a, a, a memory disease almost, but we could talk mm-hmm. about in, in trauma. And I'm thinking about, you know, how those are specific events, but there are worldviews that are traumatizing as well. And materialism perhaps served us at a certain point, but now materialism is itself traumatic. If you have someone like Michael Shermer or, um, I'm actually I'm thinking of this character in the Mike Flanagan Netflix series, The Haunting of Hill House. It's just great. It's very, very loosely based on the Shirley Jackson novel. But one of the characters is a paranormal investigator who doesn't believe any of the stuff that he and his whole family saw when they were kids in a haunted house that they grew up in. And he, you know, it's very clear that they're all his family is all experiencing stuff, and he keeps trying to dissuade them. And at a certain point, you stand back and you realize that he's the one that's nuts, is the one who's like calling for rationality, (laughs) and that he's kind of lost it. And I think, you know, when you're so stuck in the repeating memories of what you've been taught about materialism, that it becomes a sort of syndrome where you can't see your own environs. You can't actually see what's happening in the world, what's being revealed, what other people are sort of learning and are onto. And I think, you know, there's a lot of ways in which materialism is traumatic um, over identification with stuff and, and, you know, objecthood and all that kind of stuff, but the, we'll, we don't need to go there right this second, but one of them is just that it's keeping people out of being able to see what's right in front of them. And I think that <laughs> what unfortunately results then is um, counter arguments to the trauma. So like when I think about flat earthers, um, I think that there's something really <laughs> in some ways, like, I mean, I'm not a flat earther, but I can sympathize with <laughs> the gesture, which is, Essentially, science is telling me this, but my experience is this other thing. Why is my experience always out the window when the information from a certain perspective is given to me? I actually am experiencing the flatness of the earth. So I'm going to say that that's it. Now, that gesture of it's not just all about information. It's about experience. It's about the lab and the woods is, you know, we we should actually heal that sort of relationship between the lab and the woods without just privileging the lab or the woods, because you don't want denying any sort of uh, spiritual experiences, parapsychology, paranormal experiences. And you also don't want like the complete uh, slingshot to the other side where yep. all the information and, and what happens then is that you have people like Steven Pinker, lumping ESP in with all sorts of other things, which have very different 
I mean, even just on a political or ethical or moral level, have very different resonances with people and effects on the world. Right. So, you know, because he's looking at the people that do the sort of worst with it a lot of times as well and sort of incorporating that into his perception of how it works. I think, you know, something that's happening right now, and I think this is actually the good way into talking about uh, kind of the new age after the new age, the new, new age um, is, you know, I think a lot of what we're seeking to do now is be open to the truth um, as, as sort of glib as that sounds. So the new age movement had a lot to do with understanding the link between thought and health, thought and prosperity, um, energy and matter, all that kind of stuff. But it didn't really, as you point out many times and across your publications, create a too coherent of a worldview. (laughs) It actually has a lot of sort of scattered ethical and moral issues. And, you know, that doesn't mean it's all bad, but it just, it didn't really do its work to explore. And what we're doing, I think right now is, trying to be open to what is actually going on here and what does that tell us and what directions does that point us into? So if we have shaken off or healed or are in the process of healing from that traumatic version of materialism, then how do we allow ourselves to see and pursue truth now in this new, new age? So again, that's a lot, but you know, take it away. No, it's it's wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful. I mean, <clears throat> the philosophy of materialism, which has governed Western life probably for three hundred years, dictates that matter creates itself, and that everything occurs on account of uh, chemical or material processes within a newtonian framework never mind that i don't know that isaac newton himself if he was with us would even agree with that newton had great interests in alchemy and hermeticism in the same way that christ wasn't a christian newton wasn't really a newtonian but as soon as we 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 add a suffix to these these theories they become so fixed and obviously some of the methods of materialism or that that are that are adjunct to it i mean the scientific method is basically uh, a protocol of replicability and um there's someone out of my fire escape with a big bag i hope he's friendly um but he's also the, wearing a red hat and yes. a red coat and he has a Come big in. white beard right right <laughs> <laughs> and uh the <clears throat> The scientific method is a protocol of replicability, I and mean, that's what it is. You know, we use the word science as if it's this worshipful doctrinaire thing that can never be departed from, but it's it's nothing other than a, a methodology of replication. And it's it's very, very necessary, obviously, for flying an airplane or for doing other things that are uh, necessary to get done in our world. But the notion that there can be no... Uh, exceptions to validation through methodological replicability is terribly limiting, inconsistent, and inaccurate. And even when somebody obeys the rules of the road, so to speak, as we were talking about with Daryl Bem and ESP research, the goalpost will be moved. 
and 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 we'll be reassured by people like Pinker and others that oh the evidence is not really sound evidence because of X Y and Z even though vast swaths of evidence in other fields that are less controversial in their implications are accepted that way so there's a terrible inconsistency in the way that materialist thinkers operate allowing for that inconsistency and that the problem that that brings to the world and the things that it keeps us from seeing uh, is one issue. The other issue, which I think is closer to what you were driving at, is that it also just strips people of some of their innermost experiences. It strips them from the capacity for understanding their lives. They're immediately branded crackpots or victims of confirmation bias or somebody trots out something like law of large numbers as if to say, well, weird things must happen to somebody. There are things that happen all the time that are so extraordinary in their emotional meaning to the individual that they're not even measurable by any actuarial chart. And these experiences can be so shattering and extraordinary. You use the example of having a precognitive dream and then seeing it occur. There, there, there are so many such examples, um, and 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 they come from people who relate them with such sobriety and sometimes even with a request for anonymity because they're worried that if this stuff gets out, it'll threaten their jobs or their career, whether it's an air traffic controller or a doctor or what have you. But in private conversation, I've had professionals of all types tell me the most extraordinary stories that punched a hole in the straight narrative of our world, in the materialist narrative. Now, I think we as a human community have proven in a replicable way that these things occur. But even if something is not replicable, that doesn't mean it didn't occur. That one experience can be so shattering and so extraordinary. And yet, you know, just the other day, I was watching uh, a UFO documentary uh, where uh, a woman who studies the anthropology of UFO sightings referred to uh, abductees, people who make abductee claims as, as crackpots. And I was so dispirited that she would use that word to describe these experiences because we don't know we don't know what's going on. How can you call somebody a crackpot if that individual maintains normative relationships, is capable of some sort of financial uh, sustenance or self sufficiency in the world, has a a, a life history of um, employment, uh, uh, family relations? Uh, doing all the things that we human beings need to do to get through life, it, it it's so divisive and insufficient to smear that person as a crackpot. And now, for example, the deceased uh, uh, Harvard psychiatrist John Mack spent years and years studying abductee experiences. And he said as a conclusion, look, um, if you're asking me as a, as a trauma specialist, as a psychiatrist, uh, what's my verdict? Nothing else happened to these people. There's no other sign of any other uh, psychological or biological uh, intervention that explains their stories. If you want a different answer, go to a different researcher. But I'm a trauma specialist. I'm a psychiatrist. I I specialize in in repressed memories and such. And uh, according to the protocols of my research, these people are telling the truth. So this caused a tremendous controversy. Now, whatever's going on, 
it's so insufficient to just describe these people uh, uh, with this dismissive term. And that's part of what materialism does to us. It brandishes everything that goes outside of common observation as some destructive delusion. And it's so dehumanizing to the individual. So there's ways in which this outlook holds us back as a human community. There's ways in which this outlook holds us back as a uh, as individuals. And what's going to happen is uh, the purveyors of materialism are so iron-gripped in their point of view that as a result, the philosophy itself is going to fall apart, is falling apart, is ceasing to become a governing philosophy of life. And one doesn't need to go to the fringes of thought to validate that. Articles in Scientific American about quantum physics and quantum theory are more far out than anything I've presented thus far in our talk. I always tell people, if you don't like New Agers cherry picking from quantum theory, rest assured, I am conservative in my representations. And if you doubt that, get yourself a subscription to Scientific American, <laughs> a, a journal not known for its occult passions. Yeah. And, and what's being described among researchers who are dialoguing about this among themselves and among educated lay readers is more far out than what I've been describing. Materialism is going to linger for a long time. Uh, these changes are not sudden, but people uh, who cling to it are clinging to the ore of a philosophy that is absolutely fraying. It, it simply doesn't cover the bases of life anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> part of the problem, and it's something that I suppose Jeffrey Kroepel is maybe getting at too, when he spoke with you, you know, is the problem with proof, you know, and proofiness and all that kind of stuff. And the ways that even people who are demonstrating paranormal, parapsychological, supernatural stuff is real. They're still reaching for the old way of like proving it and showing it to people and yep. therefore sort of funneling it back into uh, an idea that we can come to an understanding of what's real through a consensus in a worldview, which is materialism, which is a sort of religious, almost Zen-like approach through a certain method of science, because there have been many methods of science, and so this is just the latest iteration, a certain kind of method of science, which is a ritual <laughs> that brings us a, a certain understanding of how the world works. But what if actually what we're heading towards is uh, an understanding of reality based on subjective perception and understanding and experience. We're in real trouble if we keep clinging to materialism for too long because um, we're not going to be training ourselves in how to deal with that ethically. So all we're going to have is people gathering together in groups to try to create a new dominant discourse of reality fighting each other. So you saw this, I mean, quite clearly in, you know, the Q, uh, QAnon, you know, people attacking uh, the White House, all that kind of stuff with ideas, certain ideas about witchcraft and whatever, which were largely incoherent um, messes. And, you know, and the ways people have their, you know, reality tunnels or whatever um, people say or timelines on social media, trying to, and only sort of seeing what they see, 
um, uh, you know, being in their echo chambers, only sort of being able to see what they see and trying to dominate other people's worldviews. This is like, I think one of the reasons among others that the Me Too movement and the sort of raising of attentiveness to sexual assault was such a shattering moment for who we were because the idea was no one else saw this. It was just me and the person who did it. And I've been gaslit my entire life that this didn't happen and I've watched happen. I'm telling you that this happened. So now the question, and this is not just to funnel all that into a philosophical point, but I think you can see what I'm saying. It's like the now what's being said is, look, my subjective experience and my reporting of what happened here and my sense of violation is important. And then the ways that that spread into that kind of discussion became quite apparent. It was like, oh, so I was sexually assaulted because someone groped me at a club. Now you might say to that person, well, that's not the same as someone else being sexually assaulted, but that person could say to you, that was one of the most violating experiences I've ever had in my life. So, you know, so let's take it further. (laughs) Um, not to compare the two, but to just sort of deepen the point a little bit. There are lots of people who claim to be sexually assaulted by supernatural entities or aliens, particularly women. So Mm -hmm. if this, if we get into this sort of thing of believe the victims, but you don't believe the perpetrator exists, then you're also sort of the only thing you can ground yourself in is the subjective experience. So I think that's important. And I think that that's actually a direction we should move in, which is affirming the living experiences of people. Um, But the challenge is how do we fit them all together? (laughs) The challenge is not deny it because we don't agree with it because it doesn't fit into our political understanding or ideas about gender or what men should be able to do or what women should do with their lives or how they should experience things. But how do we fit all these things together? And we don't really have our bearings with that at all. And so this is all just, that was that whole sort of me too arc was just to sort of bring to the fore a time when the subjective experience became sort of pronounced um, in the in the public sphere, and when we were listening to people report their experiences and say it's not what he said, and I know you have all accepted that as reality, but this is what happened to me, and I need you to hear it. Um, yep. And how important that was for all of us, and how shattering it was to so many people's grip on reality. Even like people fucking lost it over that entire movement, and so what is up to us now, which is a huge challenge. And it touches on the repeatability thing you're talking about. It touches on um, the (laughs) interpretation of, uh, you know, um, of studying for the test the day after and affecting the past and all that kind of stuff. It, it, It touches on all of that is how are we going to create, um, infuse a world where people are having and rightfully affirming their subjective experience as a foundation of reality, how are we going to infuse that with morality? How are we going to make that ethical? How are we going to come together and try to understand each other? And that's not possible by just creating some blanket idea of how things work, whether it's materialism or older forms of religion that just sort of like stuff everybody into the progress stream bread and like cut off all the limbs that don't fit there. We need to invite everybody's 
otherness to the party and figure out a way to communicate something. And that's, I mean, that's a huge challenge. And and we can see quite clearly from the examples I cited before that we're not up to it. That's a wonderful point, And it's an enormous challenge. Um, it seems to me that, and I say this based on personal experience and intimacies, we as human beings can endure trauma. We cannot endure the denial of trauma. We cannot endure being gaslit, as you said. And I think there's nothing more painful to a person in a family situation or a social situation than being told um, that didn't happen. I don't remember that. I don't know what you're talking about. And and actually, it occurs that people people do have different memories of events. Emotions shape memories, it seems to me. Uh, I, I, I know this from my own experience um, with my own sibling. You know, we grew up in the same household, four-year age difference, and we have different memories and different recollections of certain things that occurred because they carried different emotional impact for one another. And using that to deny another person's experience is a very heavy and 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 re-traumatizing thing. Now, <clears throat> I'll state something, you know, very personally. I feel that I am not very good at this, you know, apropos of what you're describing, because I have my areas where I get into a very reactive mode. I get into a very reactive mode around what might be called uh, conspiracy theories, let's say, in opposition to conspiracy theories, because I tend to think of conspiracism as the as man's perpetual search for a hidden foe. And that foe is always found, whether it's witches or Satanists or you name it. And and I take this stuff very, very seriously. About 18 months ago, there was a house in the town of Poughkeepsie, New York, which is in the Hudson Valley, which was occupied by two members of the Church of Satan. And a guy in a hazmat suit whose features were disguised uh, doused the, the house with with gasoline and burned it down. And the two um, people in the house managed to escape with their lives. Uh, to my knowledge, no one has ever been caught in this crime. It was obviously a hate crime. Anybody who wants to read about it can just put Poughkeepsie, Church of Satan, into a news search, and they can read all about it in the New York Times or wherever you like. And that, to me, is the end point of conspiracy theories. And I have a very reactive mm -hmm. position against these things. But some friends, including uh, Miguel Connor, have said to me, you know, you're perhaps too reactive against these things. And it, it, it closes out a narrative. Maybe maybe there's a certain truth in, in things in the way that there's a truth in mythology. None of us really believe that Icarus literally flew too close to the sun and then fell to earth. But we understand that there's a truth in that. And, and so he's trying to kind of change the perspective on how critics, of which I am one, view the conspiracy theories. And when I now articulate these things on Twitter or wherever, there's a population of people who get very angry with me, who feel very unseen, who feel I don't have the facts and this and that. And one can argue about that. And maybe in some cases I do have the facts and maybe my concerns that conspiracy theories go to this place of dehumanizing other people, maybe that's real. I certainly feel that it's real, but I do a, maybe I'm doing a bad job. Maybe I'm doing a bad job, you know, apropos of what you're saying. Maybe 
I'm painting with too broad a brush and sometimes I'm gaslighting people. I don't know. You know, no, no, I don't no. know, but I, <laughs> I have to say I'm not, <laughs> I'm right. Um, <laughs> it's everyone else who's wrong, but you know, I guess I'm saying this because I have to at least try to stand in front of the question myself, because we all tell ourselves I'm the good guy. Everybody, you know, the guy staring back at me in the mirror is always the hero. and is always the person who's right. Now, I'm not forecasting a sea change. I assume that when we talk next New Year's, if I'm invited back, I'll probably still have my same critique of conspiracy theories. I'm I'm alarmed by them. I oppose them. I'm concerned about their encroachment on the spiritual culture. But um, shame on me if I don't at least consider you know, what you're describing in light of my own response, because I could see how um, an academic or someone else could call somebody a crackpot for mm-hmm. uh, purveying an abduction narrative. I understand it. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. And I'm not sure I factually agree with it either in any way. But what about those areas where, where I do that? You know, do I have to stand naked in front of that? Well, I mean, we all have to do that, but I mean, admitting that itself is, you know, a bit of an amulet against falling into conspiracy theory thinking, you know? And so I think the, I mean, obviously there are different kinds of conspiracy theories, but the ones that you're talking about and the ones that are largely represented in popular culture, but also popular political action now, I mean, those people are the ones who precisely have the inability to acknowledge the spiritual reality of other human beings and that, you know, and are locked into a certain kind of materialism where others don't exist. Like, well, everybody else is sheep. I'm the one who knows, but uh, well, yes, but then why are all your conspiracy theories just sort of shuffling around who's in power and never actually questioning the dynamics of power in the first place? Why are all your spiritual, your conspiracies related to materialism in one way and material conditions instead of trying to understand through spiritual development, much less self-development, what the spiritual forces um, are, are are that are commingling and you know coming together in the events of the day. They're always located in naming certain people who are doing certain bad materialistic things. And so for me, they just become very like not very useful in identifying any sort of problem or issue because they're just dead end materialism that sort of complicates itself in a different way than everyday materialism. I so agree. I don't really accept that. I agree. And, you know, and then also it's like, how, how would you ever see, you know, how would you ever affirm the subjectivity of another person if they're just sheep, literally sheeple, you know, it's like what people will say. I think I'm thinking of, you know, maybe an unlikely source to relate it back to some of the things I was saying before and what you're saying now, which is Sigmund Freud, who Freud gets right, uh, wrongly, (laughs) wrongly, nice Freudian slip there. Freud gets wrongly (laughs) (laughs) accused of uh, dismissing um, people who said that they had suffered abuse uh, as children um, and that that had caused their pathology. Um, a lot of people said, well, he said in earlier work that everybody had been abused, but then as he got older, he said, no, people hadn't really been abused. They were just like crazy, essentially. But Freud didn't really say that. What he said was something much more complex and much more liberating, which was um, the people who experience being abused, I'm not actually 
it, I'm not, these aren't Freud's actual words, but I'm not actually saying that they were abused or not abused. I can't prove it. All I know is that the subject before me is experiencing the pain of abuse. And I have to see their pain as worthwhile talking about, valuable to talk with them about. Um, their suffering matters. And I have to look at them beyond a question of proof. What matters to me is someone has come to me for help. And those are the ways that we can begin to approach each other morally. And <clears throat> beyond uh, abuse, which is, again, I think is just one way to talk about all of this. What about the person that says, I saw Bigfoot, you know, or I could bend the spoon with my mind. And no, I didn't, you know, um, I didn't just bend that <laughs> with my hands behind my back or yes, my house is haunted or um, I keep having these impressions of something that's going to happen in the future. Or isn't it weird? I think I did. Uh, an experiment in one of Mish Horowitz's books, and now I have a ton of money. You know, <laughs> um, <clears throat> whatever it is, positive or negative or just plain weird, it's important to look at you know what we're doing when we deny that person their subjectivity and approach with something else. That's actually that is a certain kind of <laughs> reality abuse in some sort of weird way. It's I, I'm not going to believe you. Um, and I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying skepticism has no place, but at this point, I think we can pretty make a pretty strong case that skepticism in the way that it's performed by Steven Pinker and Michael Shermer and these sorts of people whose names are thankfully not, you know, uh, quite, <laughs> they don't carry quite as much cloud as they used to. Right. I, I think we can rightfully say that the tool is no longer nuanced enough to bring us to the truth in a way that also considers human experience, human feeling and human connectivity. I think that's beautifully put. And one of the blind spots in our so-called rationalism, which is really anti-rational is prima facie taking options off the table without ever having investigated or verified them in any way, shape or form. So maybe the guy who says he saw Bigfoot is absolutely correct and empirically right. Maybe he did see Bigfoot. I, I mean, seriously, when one considers all the unexplored territory and mm -hmm. various statistical possibilities of there being some unknown cryptozoological phenomena supported by a century of, of testimony from uh, diverse and critically minded people, at least in some cases, uh, is an interviewer to just take that subject off the table immediately. When uh, Most of the time <clears throat> when journalists talk to me about paranormal phenomena, uh, the default of the conversation is, well, you know, people believe this stuff because of anxiety, because of economic insecurity, because of this, because of that, or because they're crackpots or what have you. Never is it, is it, is it even ventured that uh, their their reportage could actually be accurate <laughs> on the plainest terms. Yeah. I was having a dialogue earlier this year with uh, Richard Smoley, who's a, a scholar of esotericism. We were doing an online dialogue, uh, well, last year, earlier in 2022. And I asked Richard the question, why does belief in astrology persist? And of course, whole books have been written about the irrationality of such retentions. And Richard sort of stroked his chin and said, well, 
because it's pretty accurate. And I, I can assure your listeners that Richard is enormously capable of defending that point of view. And I have defended that point of view. Uh, I have a piece at Medium called Astrology, Is It Real? And I, I crunch the numbers and defend that point of view. And very plainly so. The fact is that I was so relieved that I was speaking with someone who had the intellectual integrity to expose himself in that way and then <laughs> and then defend his exposure, hmm. you know, rather than just immediately defaulting to the uniform um, fall guys of it's this, it's that, it's irrationality, it's insecurity. Sometimes the thing itself can be defended on its own terms. I think this leads us to a place where I have been... You know, li- reading your recent work, there's just so much that comes out. <laughs> Extremely prolific. <laughs> but I've, I've been finding myself um, sort of snagging on something lately, and I wanted to pull it apart with you, not in the spirit of disagreement, because I don't really think that that goes anywhere for either of us, but rather just to see what opens up. So mm-hmm. as a preface, I will say, you know, I did two episodes last year toward the end of last year called the problem with magic with the hosts of the weird studies Pro- podcast. And I went on to speak about the same topic again with a few other guests about maybe we actually are facing a time when magic might not be appropriate for us anymore. That magic is in a sense, another form of materialism that works on and with the material world with material actions and that, you know, people are seeking whether or not it works or doesn't work based on, you know, what happens in the material world when you do certain rituals or whatever. But that actually, um, every time you try, something's happening in the spiritual realm um, that may or may not be <laughs> good for us and good for the beings that are there. Um let me just say a tiny bit more and then see if I can pose a question here. Um, Whereas self-help, self-development, positive thinking does have at least some aspect of it that seems to ask us to work on ourselves, (laughs) to work on our inner being in a way that corresponds a bit more with something that you write in I think one of your latest books in uncertain places. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're writing about placebo and is magic necessary mm. and you ask this question in that essay, a different question, which is like, maybe just being is enough. Maybe it's not about doing all this stuff, but actually there's something about being that brings the results that we want. Um, that brings to us a, a, a more authentic form of living and being ourselves. And so what I've been working with a lot lately is how do we develop a beingness from which radiates what's needed, desired, um, requested, and nourishing to ourselves and to the world at once? in a spiritual way, not just in a, I'm doing community theater, which is also great, you know, like all that stuff is good too, but in a spiritual way, 
rather than I'm going to command forces. So that's the thing that I'm a little uh, have I'm a little stuck on, and I have my own way of thinking about it. And I'm not go as as long as this prelude has been. I'm not going into the details right now just yet. But let me hand that over to you, and maybe we can get into it a little bit. Well, this is a very heavy question for me because it. <clears throat> kind of divides me in a certain way. And maybe we'll see over the next year whether that gap gets bridged or not. Um, in this essay from Uncertain Places, and I, I, I write about this also in, in this book, Daydream Believer, I kind of, I challenge some of the standard practices of new thought or positive mind metaphysics, as well as more traditional magic like chaos magic or sigil work. And I asked myself, okay, look, the, the typical trigger in new thought, and this is true in, in placebo studies as well, is a kind of hopeful expectancy, a working oneself into the emotional state or having that state imposed on you, as it's done sometimes in placebo research, of uh, expecting a solution, a cure, whatever it is, or relief. And of course, when people are in states of grief or depression or anxiety or fear, they're not able to work themselves into this emotional state. It's what we were talking about at the beginning of pitting thought against emotion. It's pitting steam power against nuclear power. It just doesn't, it's not how we're built. It's not who we are. So is the person who's in a state of suffering bereft of solutions according to traditional magic uh, or according to new thought, because he or she can't enter that state. You know, the, uh, from, to my perspective, <clears throat> some of the same thing goes on in sigil magic, for example. The sigil is supposed to be a kind of stand-in. The ceremony becomes a kind of stand-in for the thing wished for. And, and, and in a certain sense, you're supposed to engage in a kind of artful forgetting, as though the ceremony itself is is satisfying you bring yourself to climax over this sigil and and a sense of receipt satisfaction uh is felt and there are other metaphysical mechanics that align to bring the thing into your life at least that's one perspective i've always had great difficulty with that because i can't i've never personally been able to substitute uh ceremony for experience i've never personally been able to except for really remarkable instances, work myself into a state of mood if I'm working with new thought. And I wondered, is the wish itself enough? Is the impassioned, concentrated, finely felt wish, and you don't have much trouble summoning passion around a wish, is that enough to set these mechanics in motion, which is a whole other story? So I'm wondering if we can strip away ceremony, liturgy, conventional practice, and if we understand our psyches as possessed of an extra physical component, which I argue for, is that understanding in itself enough so that we can dispense with some of the ceremony? So that's one part of the equation. But the other part of the equation is a more sensitive one for me, and that is outcome, result. And, and that starts to touch upon some of what you were describing, you know, the, 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 the wanting for the experience itself. And I do have, this is sort of a heavy statement to make, but in truth, I do have a results-based 
a spiritual practice. I do look for result. I do look for concrete experience and benefit. And I know there's, you know, all kinds of people who can go to their Bartlett's book of spiritual quotations and tell me how wrong that is and so forth. But I question that too. I question that too. Now, I have a friend, uh, Bob Roth, who um, heads up the David Lynch Foundation, which promotes transcendental meditation. Uh, years ago, I think it was 2009, Bobby said to me, um, hey, I'm going to get Paul McCartney to do a benefit concert for the David Lynch Foundation at Radio City. And I thought, oh, yeah, right. You know, and and not only did he get McCartney, he got Ringo Starr, Sheryl Crow, Jerry Seinfeld. It was like, you know, Night of a Thousand Stars. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you wouldn't believe who was at this thing. For some strange reason, Bill O'Reilly was seated in the row right in front of me. It's like, okay. Um, I, I can't begin to tell you uh, the scale of this event. And it was very successful and it went beautifully. And, you know, 12 weeks earlier, I was doubting him. And there I am sitting watching a Paul McCartney concert, you know, to benefit the Lynch Foundation. And I said to him afterwards, all right, Bobby, you spent a lot of time with the Maharishi. Spill it, spill it. He must have taught you something. You are one of the most effective people I know. And he said, look, you know, what the Maharishi taught me is you just, you work and you work and you work, and then you let go of result. Result is out of your hands. And that resonates within the Bhagavad Gita, that resonates within Christianity, that resonates within a lot of traditions. I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that. And I questioned him and I said, Look, I, I I understand philosophically what you're saying, but you want McCartney to give the concert. You want Radio City to be full. You can't have him staring out into empty rows. You want to raise money to teach kids TM. You want all this. You know, how can you how can you let that go? You know, and I I cannot. And I'm not interested in again, you know, let's throw out the Bartlett's book of of higher mind quotations. Let's forget about all that. You know, I'm talking about my personal experience. And I question, uh, Connor, whether, whether it is necessary to let go of result. I, I question that because it's very deeply baked into me. And I can't fathom that my life is exceptional, that what I experience is just my own alone. So I'm going to say it's very deeply baked into, into most of us. I mean, that's been my experience in, in the intimacies of life. And, and yet, I don't know, you know, apropos of, of your framing, apropos of your question, I don't know whether that needs to be solved or whether, in fact, it does, as you were alluding, feed into the materialist mechanics that we're raised in, that we're brought up under. Is this just a vestige of my attachment to the German lab, you know, so to speak? Is this a vestige of my attachment to everything that I grew up with? You know, you you have to have this, you have to have that. You have, I, I don't know. But I do know that the hungers that I have in life have never abated based on spiritual practice. And when I say spiritual, I mean extra physical. And if spirituality is extra physicality, I don't know that attachment to results is in any way a predicament or something that needs to be addressed or something that's a problem, or or uh, maybe it is. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe I'm locked into a cause and effect paradigm that just reflects what I grew up with. 
so that's a heavy, heavy question for me. And that's something I'm going to be living with this year, I suppose. Well, I'm glad I tapped on the heavy question. I mean, <laughs> I think that is, you know, look, I mean, there's one way to resolve it very quickly, which is the sort of, it's a Islamic saying, which is, you know, trust Allah, but tether your camel, you know. I agree like, with that saying, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, well, you, there are practical mm. works to do. It's not abandoning yourself into faith because after all, you know, the camel and the tether and the, and the stake have all been provided as well to you. But I do think, you know, p- part of my concern here, it ha- yes, it has to do with the results thing that you're bringing up. But I think for me, my real concern is what's being asked of us to meet the challenges of our time. Um, so that we are working with and on and through ourselves uh, and as well as each other, as well as all of us, as well as the cosmos and the spiritual beings and the spiritual realm as well. So, you know, I don't, mess around anymore like i did when i was younger not to say everybody who does this is just messing around but i don't mess around anymore with trying to work with this or that god to get the thing that i want because they represent it in a certain way in their pantheon or whatever that's not to say that i don't have any relationship to any um beings that appear in ancient or old texts but just to say i'm not tapping on them to get something anymore rather i'm trying to say i'm trying to see what it is that we are meant to complete together and i think you've written convincingly and well about people who have a false sense of service and just sort of present everything as well it's it's in service that will be done you know this sort of thing when they don't really mean it but you know, like I, I mean it, <laughs> you know, some of us mean it. And I do think um, it in, and, and until I don't, and there are times when I don't mean it for sure. And time, times when all I care about at all is myself, let's not, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to pretend. Um, but I do think when I go to the spiritual experiences that I'm having, I ask those questions um, it creates a different relationship between what I want, getting what I want, how to get it, um, who, who it helps, who it might hurt, all that kind of thing. That all becomes revealed to me in a way that I don't experience when I'm really just sort of focused on doing the thing to get the result. And so it just creates a much more networked picture one that doesn't dissolve or destroy the idea of desire or want, um, but one that incorporates it into a different kind of anatomy. That's a different kind of spiritual anatomy that I'm encountering. It's a very heavy question. Uh, there was a podcast host, uh, Chet Zar, a good friend I was speaking with a few weeks ago, and we were discussing this very question, and he brought up, the manner in which I had criticized uh, the vocabulary of service within spiritual tradition. And I have my reasons for doing that. But he said to me, um, 
well, you do, Mitch, believe in service, don't you? And, and you know, he was kind of meaningfully pressing me on the point. And uh, he wondered if maybe it was just a language hang up or what have you. And I have my reasons uh, for taking that, that position. I, I, I'll say this. Um, I'm a big fan of the comedian Chris Rock. I absolutely love him. And one night he was doing a stand-up routine. And he was talking about the experience of being a dishwasher at Red Lobster and how shitty and demeaning a job that was and how much happier he is now that he's, you know, a comic and this is what he does. And 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 having work like that, that was that was so depleting, you know, compared to work that's so sustaining. And he said, uh, and I felt he was sincere, you know, he's in this big arena. And he said, that is what I wish, you know, for everybody in this room tonight that you find that that work that's sustaining and i felt the sincerity of his statement and i've made similar statements and i i mean it i mean it i wish that for my readers i wish that for your listeners is that service i i don't know but it is sincere it is sincere i want people to get somewhere i i explore practical methods for myself and for whomever the individual is who i'm in exchange with I want that person to get somewhere. I want that individual to experience agency. Uh, is that service? I, I don't know. It, it is sincerely felt. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I definitely appreciate all of that. And I, I understand a lot of what you've written about service or forgiveness or some of the other things that are sort of batted around as, you know, an exploration of how they're, even I would say weaponized um, that they can dehumanize people when they're turned into dogmas or demands. Um, I think, I think for me, I find that the more I work towards the authentic spiritual life, that is weirdly somehow located within me, even though I don't, and I know it's there, but I don't know what shape it is. Um, the more I work towards that, either uncovering it or standing in its light more often or however, whatever metaphor we'd like to use, I find that I get what I want. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it, this is this interesting thing. And, and I find that I forget about other things that I thought I wanted, but didn't. And so... I think the way people often talk about that is like, well, if you just sort of do what you love, like you'll get what you want. That's the very material way of talking about it. Or they'll say something like, um, well, if you just follow God, everything else will come. You know, like I'm thinking of all the sort of bad ways of saying this. But what I'm saying is like, I actually don't know what that's, I don't know what that spiritual being is, that better person within me, that good, free faithful being that's in me i just try to find him or it as much as possible and keep company with it and when i do that i i find oh <laughs> look at how everything just is turning out and that it's just a different it's a different direction but i think that that direction has different consequences and presences on the other planes of being well, I would say I know it does in some ways, but I won't 
put that on everybody else. I'll just say what I know myself. Um, then saying to elemental beings in the elemental kingdom, um, hey, come here and do this thing that I'm asking you to do. Come here. I need that. I need that. I need that. Not because it's wrong to want things. And see, that's the other trap that people get into. It's like, oh, the wrong part is wanting stuff. No, that's not wrong. I mean, it's good to want what you actually want instead of wanting what you've been lured into just thinking you want. Sure. But the bad part is actually engaging with this being, which you admit has its own reality, its own experiences, is a real being, and then being like, go do my bidding. Not just in goetic magic, but in any kind of magic, really, you're using elemental beings to get the things that you want. And that has an effect. And especially in a time when we need to deepen uh, the ways we relate to that plane and those beings. Um, I worry about that kind of servitude. I don't want them in, I don't want them washing my red lobster dishes. Do you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's fascinating. Uh, I mean, I do engage in the, uh, mode of seeking that you're describing um petitioning petitioning mm-hmm. uh a- a- extra physical forces uh that is part of my life you can call it prayer call it whatever you wish i i do engage in that i do feel that at this point in my search that what i'm seeking is self expression broadly defined i i, I would say that the paucity of self expression in people's lives results in a, a terrible nagging anxiety or low-grade depression or what have you. And obviously, self-expression can take myriad forms. It's a very intimate question, depending upon the individual. I discovered at a certain point that the form of self-expression I was after was uh, public presentation, writing, speaking, so forth. I am never so relaxed. I am never so at ease. I am never so at home in my skin than when I am presenting publicly, whether it be writing or whether it be speaking to an audience or in front of a camera or what have you. And I, I've noticed that and I've tracked that for years and years and years across my life. And I found that there is a profound relaxation that sets in that's like nothing else I experience when I'm in that position. And when I was a kid and I was in grade school, I used to play the part of the class clown and I would get in a lot of trouble because I was very disruptive uh, in the classroom. And I was, you know, massive pain. And they asked my teachers, I'm sorry, Mrs. Koshell. And, you know, <laughs> but that's that's how it was. And <clears throat> I, I suspect probably what was going on was this this yearning for public presentation that a nine-year-old kid doesn't have a hell of a lot of ways of of dealing with uh, unless he or she is a a budding performer or an athlete or what have you and i i i i channeled it into these ways that were very disruptive nowadays um the charge that i get and that wonderful sense of being at ease in my own skin uh, comes when i'm publicly presenting so people say to me oh my god you know you work all the time don't you ever sleep and it comes very easily to me, truth be told, until I reach just absolute physical fatigue, at which point I do have to stop. Because that that joy, that unbridled joy from public expression is the form of selfhood that I have been yearning to 
um, act on my whole life. So in that sense, if people say, well, gee, has the search made you happier? Has, has any of this stuff produced a concrete payoff? Well, that's the payoff. That's the payoff. There's things that I want, uh, that push me forward, you know, within that paradigm. And that may bump into some of the, materialist issues that you're raising. And I may have to come face to face with that because I'm starting to notice that I know more and more people who are appearing on the obituary pages. And that's not just <laughs> happenstance. You know, you get older and you're like, oh, there goes another. Loved his work, loved her work, you know, and it it ain't just happenstance. Uh, lost Vivian Westwood, lost Terry Hall, yeah. lost Jacob Needleman, lost Milton Viorst, you know, all these people by whom I was influenced uh, are 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 appearing with greater frequency. So there is going to be an endpoint here, and I'm going to have to come to terms with that. But I am I am so relaxed and so happy when I'm doing this. And I guess when I say to another person, that's what I wish for the other person. Uh, I I mean it. You know, I'm not I'm not messing around with sentimental language. I mean it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think about all that, Mitch. As you actually just kind of standing in love then um why do i say that you know when i did my book tour last year people were like aren't you exhausted because i was it was 11 cities in 14 days i mean on two coasts <laughs> and i drove you know my, my boyfriend doesn't have an american driver's license so <laughs> i did the driving um and i was like no because Actually, when I go out and talk about these things, it's extremely enlivening. And it related me back to, you know, the the thing that, you know, another thing that Rudolf Steiner says, that love is a giving capacity. Meaning the more you give, the more you have to give. And I think that that is the mark of actually being... I will not say a servant because maybe you don't want to like that word, but <laughs> service to love is that you're able to give more through the giving. And, um, you know, look, I mean, I think I, I started this leg of the episode by saying, you know, there's certain aspects that I am having some trouble with and maybe we'll talk about that more personally, but, you know, in personal correspondence, but I think the bottom line is, you know, you're always welcome here on this show because one, I just like you, but two, you have obviously demonstrated that wherever you land on this or that point, the the pathway that you're working on and through and the, the exploration and expression of all that is really deeply helpful to others and also really resonant in a kind and warm way that's really needed. So, I just want to thank you at the beginning of 2023. And thank uh, you. Yeah. Thanks for coming on again, Mitch. Ward. Absolutely. I, I thank you for that. I'm very moved by that. I want to share, if I may, two quick recollections from your book tour, because I was at one of the events at the Strand here in New York City. And you said something that, that cycles back to what we began with, which is the surreality of time. Uh, you recall that when you were a little kid growing up in, I think it was central Pennsylvania, you dreamed of growing up to become a novelist and used to draw 
uh, book covers as a kid and you would decorate them with endorsements from some of your favorite writers. And I actually have a copy of it right here on my dining room table. <laughs> here, Here's your book, Hawk Mountain. And when you were a little kid, <laughs> you, you draw an imaginary quote on one of your book covers from one of your... Uh, uh, literary heroes, Clive Barker. And here's a Clive Barker quote on the cover of your book. You know, is it possible? Is it possible that this surreality of time is such that maybe that actually shaped your selective, but entirely real, entirely real experience of your childhood, that it, it reoriented everything in this kind of many worlds property so that what was going on in the so-called past is in comport with what's going on in the present. I, I don't know, but it's worth considering uh, the congruity between what you described as a kid and what you've experienced as an adult is just extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And there was another lighter moment during the evening uh, where your co-host, Will Menneker, said something that was so funny, I almost like pissed myself where you were looking for a certain passage in Hawk Mountain to read and uh, you had lost your place and you said, Will, say something to distract everybody while I'm searching for this place. And Will said, how about this Biden? What's with this guy, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm losing it. I'm not sure everybody knew what to make of it, but he was obviously skewering, you know, conventional discourse. And I just loved it. So uh, uh, I have very happy memories of that tour, or at least the leg of it that I saw. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rich. And, and <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you look, th those are great memories from the past. And I think the Clive Barker thing and a lot of what we're talking about is developing the capacity to remember the future. And when uh, remembering I, the future, beautiful. Yeah, Beautiful. when I yeah. do that, um, I'm remembering our conversation from 2024, and it's great. So, right on. Yeah, can't wait to talk. <laughs> can't wait to live it out with you. <laughs> thank you so much, man. Such a pleasure. Yeah, thank thank you, you so much, and thanks everybody for listening. Bye now. Um,